Welcome back to Behind the Splinters, a limited series interview podcast about the making of sci-fi's 12 monkeys. This is Beep. In just a moment, you'll hear Cece and I speaking with costume designer extraordinaire Joyce Schur. Co-creator and showrunner Terry Metalis also joins us for the first half. We wanted to know what it was like to design costumes for a time travel show that spanned from the 1400s to the 2100s, and Joyce has a lot to share about that incredible process. Enjoy! So welcome to both Terry Metalis, creator of 12 Monkeys. Hello. As well as Joyce Schur, who was the costume designer on the show. So Joyce, if you would, can you tell us a little bit about how you began working in costume design? I started in fashion and happened to work for a couple of designers in Toronto who simultaneously got pregnant and ended up closing their design studio and had friends that worked in film. So through a series of completely random events, I got a call and somebody said to me, would you like to work on a feature film? And uh, I wasn't asked to be the costume designer. I was going to be the set supervisor, which is still a very kind of responsible position in film considering I'd never done it before. And um, uh, I said, of course. And they said, you know, they didn't care if I could sew. They didn't care if I had any experience. They just wanted to know, could I drive a truck? And I said, (laughs) yeah, I can drive a truck. And I got the job. So um, (laughs) that was my first experience. And it it turned out to be a big co-pro feature film between like Sweden and Britain and Canada and I I don't know it has it was it was one though it sounds exciting it was one of those kind of at the time straight to video was going to go straight to video features but um that was where I began and then after that I I think there was a lot of alcohol involved I was at a party (laughs) might have been for that movie and I remember having this really intense conversation with this lady I met um only uh, oh the uh, Those conversations you have only when you are that drunk, and it seems that interesting and important. And and it turned out she was a producer, and she was producing a short film. And I don't know what I said to her, but she said there was a lot of gesticulating involved around my breasts. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. I was kind of describing costumes, and I but I was using a lot of hand. Anyway, I don't really remember, but um, next thing you know, I got a call. And she said, do you want to be the costume designer of, my, of the <laughs> thing? Amazing. Because we had such a good conversation and I'm doing this project. And would you, I'm like, what? <laughs> so, um, and that, that was my first time costume designing. And it was, a, it was something up here in Toronto for Canadian television. And I, um, I think it's still to this day. Now I've been a costume designer for 30 years. That was the most intense um job interview I ever had because I walked in and and she sat down she said um okay impress me and nobody's ever said that to me as though but I'd never done an interview as a costume designer so I wasn't really sure it was that standard or anyway so that's I got the job in the end I came up with the right answer I guess I impressed her and uh that was how I began That's like the best non-story I've ever heard. I don't know. I just literally tripped into it. I have no idea what's happening. I did. I did. But but I will say, I think that's probably, my story isn't unique in that, of course, now having worked for quite a long time in the industry, 
other people who want to costume design ask, you know, how did you get into it? How do I get into it? And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know, not like me. <laughs> I think lots of people kind of fall into it. It seems like there's no, um, there's no one single path for any, any person in film, regardless of the department. We all sort of like, it, it's the, it seems like it's the, the last job for all those people who can't hold down regular jobs. Oh. We all find ourselves in this kind of, great but you know unorthodox kind of workplace but your advice to anyone looking to get into it is just like make sure you can drive a truck (laughs) make sure you drive a truck and yeah (laughs) happenstance really it is there is a lot of luck involved obviously just right time right place and kind of the door opened i and i and i walk through it but yeah are you based out of toronto i am cool and so, are, is it Joyce? Did you join Twelve Monkeys beginning in season two? I did. Okay, just to sort of sort of tee that up, Terry. Mm. Season two is the first season where we start going beyond just our present day and sort of the post apocalypse. So, were you all sort of before reaching out to Joyce, having sort of behind the scenes conversations about? the greater role costuming would play as the series went forward? Yeah, absolutely. And if we could afford it, then the answer is we couldn't. But (laughs) the the Barbara Somerville, who had done season one, who I worked with on Nikita, she had gone on to another show, and um, it was kind of – season two was kind of reinventing itself. It was was – that was the season when I was – fully show running season one i was show running but also had a lot of oversight like a lot of first time showrunners uh on a series uh there was uh, natalie chidez and lots of other people and um lots of line producers and making the decision season two where we're like all right well now we're gonna go for it so it was kind of the perfect chance perfect opportunity for someone new to come in actually and um yeah, I think right right away, part of the of the conversation with anyone who we were meeting with was, look, we're we're going to do period, we're going to do 1940s and 50s, and um, and we wanted to, you know, we changed the look of the daughters a bit more um, from season one, uh, so it was a, it was a chance to really to to really mix it up. And Joyce came in, I think she put together, I think you drew, even drew some things as well. Um, you know, we just, we knew right away, Joyce was the, was going to be perfect. Aww. <laughs> so Joyce, when you heard that you were working, you know, that the opportunity was to work on time travel and you were going to be, I mean, at least for season two, it was only 1940s through <laughs> tw- 2044. You had no idea that it was going to be much, a much wider expanse of time. Was that exciting? You know, daunting, maybe a little of both? Uh, the time travel for me was the, the familiar part, like going back to the forties. And I, I had quite a bit of experience doing, you know, period shows. So the, the, the period stuff, wasn't as daunting as the the world we were in sort of normally our post-apocalyptic world that was something i hadn't done uh before at all that that was all new to me so it was a little uh yeah i was a little i was a little that was new territory for me going in but 
very quickly realized how amazingly creative it allowed me to be. So at first a little trepidatious, but wanting to take it on. And then once we were in it, it was like, oh my God, this is so much fun. We can do anything because you're always kind of held to the constraints of the periods, you know, when, when we're going back in time, but in the future, I mean, there's no constraints at all. Yeah. Except leather. There has to be leather. (laughs) It feels like, yeah, that's true. But, but it's interesting, though, because um, you see that comment along uh, uh, um, from fans and stuff who follow along the show about leather. And, like, season two, there's a lot more leather jackets. We tried all the versions without leather, too. You know, like, we – and after a while, you sit there and you go, you know, it's missing fucking leather. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, there's, there is just a feeling to, to like, you know, Cole got his, his sort of hero motorcycle jacket in that – in season two and uh same with ramsey and same with cassie and it the attitude that it brought is not something you know a flannel peacoat would you know what i mean like it it, it, it just doesn't have the same thing no so, it's badass yeah yeah, yeah. but i will yeah. say joyce was was great with period i don't think she understood time travel at all the actual no time travel. no 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 <laughs> to this day <laughs> no, no, she has no idea what the show is about I, I do. I read the scripts for sure. I, I, I know. I basically know the broad strokes. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Of course, I do. I do. I do. But, it, but hold on. But Joyce, we should talk about like how hard that was, right? So, the uh, one of the things because we had no money, and I mean, poor Joyce had no money to do this. Every time you look at a costume and you think it looks amazing on the show, it's because of her genius in figuring out how to source materials and get it get it put together at, at extreme uh, and an extreme pace. But we would also shoot. Sometimes we shoot three of these at a time, which means you take episodes, say one through three of, of season two uh, and you're shooting, you know, you never shoot in order. So not only are you doing time travel, you're, you're also shooting it out of order. So it would drive the ward, like the coding system that wardrobe had to do, like, Okay, so she wore this back in time, but now she's been shot and it's dirty and this. And now we got to get her changed back to something that was, it was insane. And do you remember that, Joyce? Yeah, and that became my – this is why I'm, I'm, I pushed back a little bit when you said I don't understand the time travel to this day. I am the one who had to figure out where all the clothes were, like figuratively – not literally, I knew they were in my office or on the uh, wardrobe truck, but but within the story. So, for example, talking about the leathers, you know, we did all this work. We really worked hard to kind of create this super badass look for them in the future. It was camera tested, you know, lots of adjustments, lots of tweaking to really make everybody uh, look as great as possible. And then I remember I was in a fitting with Amanda and Amanda said to me, so you realize, of course, that as soon as we splinter to the 40s, these clothes are all gone, right? Because of the conceit of our show that when you splintered from whatever time to the next time, you arrived there in the clothes, obviously, you splintered in. But when they splintered back to our temporal facility, they were wearing their period clothes. So the the you know the amazing outfit that we'd enjoyed for whatever episode, it was gone. So now I'm having to track story-wise, where were the clothes left and in what time period? So when we came up with the Emerson 
and the Emerson Hotel and the suite they had in the hotel that kind of came that became their their one spot where they would come and go from eventually in our story. Thank God. Thank God. Because that closet, I was trying to claw back like, where's that great jacket? Okay, Cole left it at the Emerson in the 1950s episode. Okay, well, now it's the 1970s. Or I, or he would splinter back or I would try to get him to wear it back when he goes back there in the 70s. I'm like, fuck that. He's, he's putting the jacket on and he's splintering back to the temporal facility because I need that jacket because we're going into three episodes of whatever, you know, our post-apocalyptic time. So... Just tracking who dropped the clothes where so that it worked within our story for them to reappear. Because as Terry says, there wasn't enough money. There wasn't enough money to be losing clothes all over the timeline. I had to get those clothes back. So this became this very meticulous tracking system that I was always doing. And I felt like by the time we got towards the end of season four, nobody cared. Like nobody really knew where the clothes were but but me. I remember in production (laughs) meetings, people saying, can we do that? Like, where's those clothes? And oh, yeah, okay, I can get those clothes. So, So anyway, that was just one of those... Know, specific to costume department, uh, but um, trying to stretch our resources as far as we could, and uh, I'm I'm heavy sighing as I think yeah. about the work. It's, it's it such a lot. good point, though. I mean, it, you're saying it, and it's hitting me right because Cassie doesn't, you know, she's never splintering with a suitcase back <laughs> to bring her clothes back. That's such a good. That's such a good point. Yeah. Um, can you all describe, I mean, just, you know, for people listening, what we really would love to hear about is, you know, Terry, you write a script or your writer's room, you all put a script together and then you hand it to Joyce. And then, you know, you have the words on the page. Can you walk us through a little bit of the process, not only, for example, where in time is this character, but also, I don't know if it plays into it, where, where is this character in their character journey and, and how are, how they're dressed going to, going to communicate that? Even things as simple as are they wearing something that's very buttoned up versus something very relaxed? Um, and just sort of your process behind the scenes of you get a script. What happens next? think just overall even before we got to the point of of like working together on scripts there was uh for terry and i because we did work so close um on all of the costumes throughout all the seasons he was my you know go-to guy and i was always walking actors onto set because i could if i could find him there i was walking actors into his office i was walking actors into production meetings or his other meetings interrupting them like what do you think like um we were constantly (laughs) collaborating but um i think initially we were working on we had to create this language a good language between us i spoke costumes and clothing terry spoke titans and causality and a lot of star wars and so we were always like trying to figure out the right words to, for me to relate to him. Like, I think this, and he, and then he would tell me what he thinks, but come like coming to those consensuses that we knew what the other one meant. I think initially we used a lot of like visual references, Terry, right? Yeah. We were like exchanging a lot of pictures and you were spending time on your weekends, like sent, firing me off you know, images of like, what about this? What about that? And we would go back and forth with this kind of, building a language for this future world, the post-apocalyptic world specifically. Because like I say, as soon as we started time traveling, we could rely on sort of historic reference at that point. But um, it was all this amazing futuristic 
complete world that we were building with all the characters that ended up populating it through the three seasons that I think that's where we we started like kind of trying to come together on this common language and then once we got that it made it really easy to to sort of push through as as this world opened up to us yeah and and I would say that you know you you would ask those questions though the character questions as well and sometimes you would remind me you know, you'd be like, I think that, you know, specifically, I think with like Emily and like, you know, you, you, a lot of, uh, sweaters with thumb holes cut out and things like that, like, like really focusing on, um, what a gothy emo girl would wear. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you, 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 you had your mind, um, also in the character space as well. I think, yeah, when you're going to, um, it's funny you mentioned Star Wars because I think we started to use those references deeper in like season three, uh, when we had like the handmaids of Titan, you know, well before handmaid's tale was on the air and like, what do they look like? Um, and for Joyce who has a deep history of wardrobe throughout centuries, I mean, that could be anything. Is that a nun? Is that a, 13th century cleric like what you know like i'm sure she was and she was overwhelmed by like i don't know where to begin so she it would it would be okay what do you have in mind what is the color what is the thing and then i i would have to be like i'm like let's get the star wars costume book from like uh phantom menace and like look at natalie portman's um folks that were like in what they were draped in be like okay so we don't want to do this but there's goods in interesting aspects of this that could work and how do we make it our own and also how do we make it on for six dollars and 72 cents <laughs> yeah well let's let's take if you don't mind just since you mentioned um and and we can just we can jump around but since you mentioned mother why don't we start with that titan aesthetic because that was an opportunity uh, to be really creative right you guys aren't tethered to a particular historical period so what does a time traveling city with a cult how do they dress um and so um so you started sort of with phantom menace um and you've got the acolytes um and then you've got the guardians with the bowler hats i mean it seemed like you all were playing with a lot of different aesthetics can you talk a little bit about how you let's just talk about like start off with cassie's red dress and her attendance well, we started with a red dress, and I remember, <laughs> I remember coming out to Hamilton because Terry was shooting out there on whatever scenes we were doing. You know, a couple of days before that, that red dress had to play on camera, and I had started with a cloth that was, I, as it turns out, much too delicate. And I remember, you know, we had a moment to show Terry, and I pull Amanda off set, or or I brought her with me, I can't remember, and I throw this dress on her, and there was so much going on, and we're, we're trying to get her aside so Terry can have a look at her. And it was, you know, it was a case of not a lot of time, trying something, and then in that case, it didn't work. It was too delicate, too sort of... It wasn't. Oh right! Remember, it, was like it wasn't. It wasn't. It was like it was the right red, but it was a little too. I don't think it had enough gravitas behind it, enough queenliness, and it was sort of it was a, a beautiful heavy satin, but it was too shiny, 
too delicate. And I just remember, you know, dressing Amanda in some like drafty, cold, I don't know where we were, some dirty old building. And um, her presenting it to you and you're like, uh, <laughs> no. So yeah. sometimes you have to, tr- you know, because we it, you know, there are missteps in that you're trying things to say like, okay, does this land? And and in that case, it didn't. And then, but that was good because it kind of gave us a, a more firmer footing on what we do want, which was something that was heavier and more matte and more um, uh, just regal, I think. I think the first thing I came up with wasn't regal enough for her. Yeah, regal and also like had a kind of religious... Um, um, like she was very covered up too as well. Like it, it, it had a, um, a feeling of captivity as well. Like there was a sadness mm. to it. And the, and the deep red was of course part of the 12 monkey religion in every aspect. And this was the mother. So yeah, it was, um, that was really fun. I think because that was our chance to really take this, the whole aesthetic of the show into this really unique, unique place that had never been before same thing with the with the the guys with the bowler hats and um i think i don't even remember where the bowler hats came from it might have come from we had um a concept artist uh do some things and he might have just drew, he drew that on there and and uh and then and then poor joyce has to go find 75 hats and try and see see which one is great and it's going to fit on all these people. And I remember actually, um, to this day, my very good friend Stacy Fung, who is our studio exec, still she does not like the bowler hats. And we all love them. We love that look. Like I think it's so cool. I love it on that poster. Um, but you know, it and but you know, you have to listen to like Stacy is an is an excellent gauge of Someone who's not internal, like Joyce and I, who have our own, you know, weird fetishes of what we might think is cool or not. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, are we making a huge mistake? Or, you know, but ultimately, I don't think we went with our gut and it came out pretty cool. Yes. And I remember that fitting that I did. I think it was with Hannah Waddingham, who was one of the guardians. Yeah. And our our show, obviously, when you watch it, is is like darkly lit and very moody and so you know in the case of the guardians i remember in her fitting worrying that the coolness of that look wasn't going to translate if you know her having the actor against a bright psych and in a well-lit costume office and it was it it just wasn't going to translate the that way the right way so i remember like we shut off all the lights and i pulled the the blacks around to try to make it dark and we took a picture of hannah like in the pitch dark and then i sent that to you terry right at the i think it was one of the last fitting photo options i sent for that costume and i remember you came back and you said look at this or what about this like and that was i think the thing that help support it for you and I that yeah that's going to work and it's really going to look cool because it was very yeah. dark and very silhouette and yes. that ends up how they end up really I think that's the impact of those costumes for the Guardians was that silhouette mm-hmm. look we created. Right, right. With, right with those bright lights of that splinter vest on. Yeah, like, yeah that Mary, Mary that. Arthur's our, our props lady did, yeah. Are the splinter suits, do splinter suits fall under costuming or props? Those vests were built by the props department. 
Okay. Yeah, they're pro- I'm looking at one right now hanging on my wall. It's but, but um, they have to work very closely, right? Because mm-hmm. that splinter vest now has to be a part of almost every costume, right? So yeah. how that thing fits on is a nightmare for uh, choice, right? So mm-hmm. now you have a splinter vest, it ha- and we want this cool silhouette, right? So you want uh, a jacket, uh, a trench coat that's going to go over that, that's still going to be slimming, even though you have this bulky device. It's really hard. Um, it's it's really hard to do. I think also uh, the other the other big um, costume that I remember us spending a tremendous amount months on it was the medieval witness uh, mm-hmm. costume of uh, Olivia of, of Allison in um, in that armor uh, yeah. and getting the mask right because the mask is technically a prop um, but the rest of the wardrobe is Joyce so everybody has to work in, in tandem that was a oh god that was like six months wasn't it it felt like it. If it wasn't, it felt like it. <laughs> yeah. Because it was drawn out and we, uh, a drawn out process. And we did have to hire, um, you know, an armorer in Toronto. But in fact, it wasn't made out of metal. It couldn't be the armor for um, Allison because of the danger, you know, riding on a horse or falling or any of her. Uh, you know, physicalness, it was too scary and too heavy to have her in actual armor, but we hired an actual armorer to create the whole suit in leather. So it was a little softer, a little lighter, a little safer, and then painted it all to to look me- like metal. But the, the other little piece of that puzzle was as drawn out and long as that process was to get it right on Allison, um... When we got to Prague with it, I had to have that entire thing reproduced in about two weeks by somebody we hoped who would do it in Prague uh, for the stunt person. Because, of course, she had a stunt double for a lot of the uh, horse riding and stuff. And again, so so there was this, com- I'd say with costumes, you have to have a lot of good luck and good faith because there's always kind of for us these open-ended problems of like, I hope I can do it. You know, and, and, and yet somehow we always managed to. So that was a huge costume drawn out to begin with. And then this huge rush to the finish at the end. But I mean, I'm really happy with the way it looked out and she wore it so well. And, yeah. um, uh, yeah, that was one of those technical, but super satisfying projects for me. Jace, one of the things I, I found so interesting, both about, um, Olivia's costume, you know, in fourteen in the fourteen hundreds, or um, in the Western episode with Cassie and Hannah, is that there is this um, almost like feminist take on, uh, you know, a woman is wearing something in a period that women would not normally be wearing, right? Like in other words, in the Western episode, Cassie and Hannah are not wearing dresses, right? They're mm-hmm. taking on men's clothing, um, which fits with sort of our aesthetic more and what we're used to seeing those characters in as opposed to what would have been quote unquote, like period appropriate or, you know, for Olivia, um, maybe you'd have Elizabeth the first having armor, but most women weren't wearing armor in mm-hmm. medieval times. So was that a conversation you all had, like how we want how do we want the witness to look and she's a woman, but she's not going to be wearing what a woman would be wearing in medieval times. Is that something you all talked about or sort of had in 
in mind as you were designing it? I don't feel like it was ever even an option to have anything less than exactly what this formidable, visually formidable character that she became. I I don't think we had that conversation, Terry. Like, it was never an option for her to be anything less, it feels like. Yeah, no, it's funny, Joyce, because a a lot of the questions we get from, from, from fans is a lot about the women on this show and, like, how much, like, how much energy did we spend going, attempting to go in the other direction of, you know, what is traditional for women? And the, 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 I, I, I think it's both a disappointing and encouraging answer, which is we, we just didn't have to. None of us felt like we ever wanted to go there. I mean, I think, uh, for Cassie, for instance, um, when she was, at the top of season three in that red dress pregnant. Um, she had gone from being super badass in season two with leather and holding two guns and doing everything to the damsel in distress kind of again. And I think, you know, early on we were like, are we making a mistake by going there after we had, you know, that's about as much of the conversation we had, but, but Immediately, two seconds, you know, like two scenes after you establish her in that, she's grabbing a hairpin and stabbing somebody through the eye and, and making a run for it and kicking ass. So it just felt like we were just trying to do what was right for the character, but we never really had conversations about what is, um, what's, what's right for the, for, for, for gender, um, things like that the only time although maybe cassie's underwear in the nazi episode i mean we talked about what like it was um it was a big swing (laughs) you know we could have easily have been shut down by by everybody for doing that but because we have joyce and amanda and all the women on the show were like this is just a great empowering moment we felt okay um ish about it um but that probably would mean that the most discussion about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I used the uh, one of the fitting photos from that costume as my uh, caller ID for Amanda Shule. I asked her, <laughs> I asked her, I said, Amanda, look at this picture. I'm making it for your caller ID. Anytime you call me, this is going to be you. She she said to me, well, I wouldn't expect any less. Of course you are. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's, I see her in that in her underwear every time she... She calls. Um, before we jump into some specific time periods, I mean, one, and I know this may again in terms of where props and costume kind of overlap, but can we talk about how you all developed? You know, one of the iconic images of this show is the witness, um, the witness mask, the cloak. Can you talk to us all about how you developed that and if there were any inspirations or sort of different iterations along the way the witness mask um that all falls under props um and that goes back to carrie right in season two carrie was the before mary came and took over do you remember Um, carrie yeah i remember carrie yeah i i just remember working with mary on it like having those i don't know i just the mask the mask was designed right at the end of Carrie's run, and it was based on a drawing that I I did um, in a production meeting because we kept trying to find a, a mask. 
mm-hmm. that worked. And, you know, we had this other gas mask thing, which we later tied into the mythology, but it didn't feel quite right. Um, and so, uh, that was something we, and then I, and then, um, Mary had to take over, uh, once Carrie had left, but then, but certainly the rest of the, the witness was, was all Joyce, the cloaks, the, the double cloak, right? Mm-hmm. She has a, has a leather yeah. jacket and has another cloak on it. Um, and, um, and then, you know, going deeper into once you knew it was Olivia, you know, there's a, there's a woman's figure and tights underneath that and boots and, you know, and cool gloves. So yeah, though that was, that was a, the witness was a, was a, long, hard process, um, many, many hours trying to make that look good and scary and not like something, uh, like a bad Jedi, like Sith outfit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it could have been, it could have been a disaster, but uh, we had a lot of, um, brilliant minds working on it. Yeah, exactly. I felt like that whole costume really was a, a step-by-step evolution of a costume like we we didn't have a clear idea where we were going to end and we luckily i would say it was one of the rare times we had time because you know terry had flagged it early enough that this is coming up and so i feel like we had you know more than a couple of days and more than a couple of weeks i feel like we had a couple of months to really really feel our way through that and we had multiple multiple fittings and i at the time had some amazing breakdown artists working with me who you know i think terry you have that cloak right you have that with you and oh, yeah. the yeah. detail the the beautiful stitching and yeah. stitching and patching and sort of um, you know it, when you look at this the, the beautiful cloaks they look you can see the history sort of um it feels like there's a history in them already they have this old weighty um you know, very uh, cool. I, I hate just using the word cool, but we did get there with uh, with the textures, and that it's not the it's not an off the rack. You know, buy it at the store. No. Costume. It's a it's a it's a thing unto itself, and you can see all the handiwork that went into creating it, which I think so. I wish we could have seen a little more of it. Anyway, um, on camera, but, you know, it's one of those. It's just it's just beautiful, 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 and I think. Yeah, Terry's right. It took a long time to, and a lot of people to kind of come to where we landed. I don't know. I don't have a great sort of description of how we got there, except that we kind of felt our way step yeah, by yeah. step and then landed in a really happy place. Yeah. And we had to light it in different in different ways. But yeah, no, I have it on a mannequin in my um, office, so I, I see it uh daily and it's still the coolest thing ever and and for now that i do most of my calls um everything is done through zoom at the moment it terrifies anyone <laughs> i'm having a conversation with like what the hell is that <laughs> <laughs> it's doing its job then right <laughs> it is terrifying yeah um i i would love to talk a little bit about the world of 2044 um the daughters old Jennifer's uh, kind of post-apocalyptic gypsy look. Um, And I know a little bit of that was picked up from season one, but as you're, what's, 
if you could just talk to us a little bit, because this is, I guess, another opportunity to be creative and thinking about, all right, in a world with limited resources, um, what are we going to create for these characters that they're wearing? Yeah, I think I think we started with old Jennifer before we developed our old our new daughter's kind of direction for the costumes. But so old Jennifer, that I guess was probably one of those moments what I, you know, I was mentioning earlier that kind of intimidating moment where in my earlier interview somebody said impress me because I remember that was one of the first things I had to tackle when I started season two, something that I could create, you know, come up with, let's come up with some ideas about where we could go with this. And I I did have, I felt like I had a kind of a good solid idea. And then I remember, I didn't kind of expect this, but like this army of men marched into my room and said, uh, okay, so what do you got for old Jennifer? And it was our lovely director, um, Mr. Grossman and Terry and some of our producers and other creative types. So I'm like, oh, uh, okay, well, this is what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And my idea was, I don't know why, but at the time, my idea, I wanted to, I wanted to take away from her shape as a woman. We're coming back to this woman issue, maybe. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make her be a little less obvious in silhouette as a woman. I, I, and I wanted to emphasize the age. So I wanted to give her kind of this exoskeleton to her costume that supported the costume, but gave her not necessarily a, an immediately recognizable shape of a woman. I wanted a dowager hump and I wanted, um, uh, we did want to keep her kind of small in the waist, but the bustle at the back, that kind of ethereal net bustle that kind of accentuated her bum. And I was kind of going for like a, I know this sounds strange, but I was kind of going for like an insect, kind of a, mm. kind of this insecty shape, this kind of bumpy insecty thing. And, and just to kind of add to the mystique of her, her character and to, and to give us something visually not recognizable initially you know that you and her whole costume is like that like the bodice was layer upon layer of cloth and then I split and cut all the surface cloth to reveal the cloth underneath and then split that to reveal the cloth underneath that and it was it was kind of like a shell an exoskeleton shell that I created for her and we had the veil at one point a kind of it was mystery Mystery. Mm-hmm. I was creating this sort of visual mystery around the old Jennifer character as we were going to see her a lot more carefully than we ever had at the end of season one when it was, you know, just sort of a, a teaser, it felt like. But we didn't get to really see her moving around a lot or, you know, outside or inside. And so this was kind of my thought behind behind the old Jennifer. And it uh, it, it ended up being what we stuck with. And, and she wore it every time she was old Jennifer. Yeah. Oh no, I was just going to talk about the veil. That that sort of like the idea was. So we had this other look that was um, uh, more Asian inspired in season one with that hat, which was very like from. I think it was from like Akira, one of the characters from Akira, uh, an older woman mystic uh, from that manga anime series. Is the was the idea. Um, and it, it was cool. Um, but we knew if, if old Jennifer was going to play a bigger role that we were going to have to do a lot of the prosthetics. And the question was, how good can, are, are we going to be able to pull that off of the money we have? And the answer was 
we did pretty great actually we like the makeup was ended up being pretty fantastic on her but we had a veil just in case one the idea was that she was sort of mourning the death of the seven billion people uh that she was in a constant state of mourning until time was changed and then the second was the veil would help um with uh not getting too close a look of the at the prosthetics but then once once we got there it she looked pretty great um and emily just started to kind of find this character the slower speaking lower thing uh so we we ended up pulling back the veil a bit more um and yeah there was something too, I think, a little bit dowager about it, you know, just in its yeah, appear- yeah. appearance. When you think of like, you know, older uh, Re- queen, you know, yeah. queens and stuff as they as they kind of age, there was that dowager kind of uh, look to her whole costume. I created that costume, and and as I said, all these gentlemen were there, and uh, you know they seemed to like the idea, so we went ahead with that. But I always felt like, you know, there's got to be something special about old Jennifer. She's a primary, and the costume has to have some unique piece or something special beyond just the the bustle and and the shape and all that stuff. So I suddenly I had this idea. I was going to find out what the primary numbers were mathematically, and I was going to crochet this special neck piece for her that was made up only of stitches of primary numbers so that uh, it was this kind of finishing detail that hangs around her neck. And I don't know if anybody's ever noticed it, her wearing it, but that, so I thought, oh my goodness, this is like going to be brilliant. It's kind of like mathematical and primary and, and it's, and I didn't know what it was going to look like. I just started crocheting this thing on a weekend and then I brought it into my tailor and we flattened it and, and starched it. So it hung in this kind of like bib like shape and it worked so perfectly on her garment with the rest of the garments. And I was so excited. And, um, and I remember, you know, and Terry, he's so busy as the showrunner of the show. And I remember pointing it out to him. I said, and look at this piece I made. And it's all, you know, the stitches are all primary numbered stitches. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> Moving, on. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. And then we're on to the next thing. And, and, and I'm saying that kind of as a way to also show like how fast the, you know, Terry mentioned it at the beginning, you know, like there wasn't a lot of resources monetarily on 12 monkeys and there was never enough time. I think looking at all the periods we jumped to that the the audience sees, we shot every episode. I think it was seven in seven days. And then we had two extra days to kind of pick up missing shots while we were already moving on to the next one. So the pace was so fast. Um, So that's kind of like, you know, Terry's like, great, let's keep going. And so we were on to the next costume at that point, which might have been, you know, us working together on the daughters. Um, There was, uh, that was a real uh, collaborative effort between Terry and I kind of setting the look with our background coordinator. And all of those daughters' costumes were curated and created for each of those girls. It wasn't kind of a, a case of, oh, I just throw this on and that on and this on. They were all fitted and, you know, Carrie, Terry was so involved at, you know, making sure every single one of those photographs was something he approved and it fell within this, this, this world, this old Jennifer world that we were creating. So, um, and there was lots of, as I already mentioned, like photo referencing and kind of combining things that we thought were really cool and interesting and then and then making it, you know, 12 monkeys. 
if we could jump, I had sort of a big picture question as, as we're sort of about to jump into actually traveling backwards through time to, to different time periods in the past. And, you know, as somebody who, who came to this through fashion and as a costume designer, just as lay people, even now, there's sort of this question of when we think back to a time period that we didn't live in, how much of it is tied to what we saw in movies and television um, versus real life, if that makes sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and and for you as and I and I assume that those they're also sort of in conversation with one another, right? Like popular culture influences fashion and vice versa, and mm-hmm. what people wear, you know, even if it was in the nineteen forties, you know, could have been inspired by a film or something like that. So. In, and maybe this differs by time period, but for you, when you were designing for the show, how much did you find yourself looking at media, if it existed from that time period, versus actual, um, like, historical record? Like, and just, we can just take 1940s, like, for example. Like, how much did you find as a designer inspires you? It's all about the actual period and, and going back to the, to the, you know, magazines of the time and the, and just the images of the time. I have, but speaking, uh, sort of answering, I think I'm answering what you're asking. That definitely, you know, looking at all the real, uh, historical photo references, it always had to be kind of filtered through a modern eye. In that, some speaking of the 40s, for example, like when we dress Cole in his 40s tux to go to the gala that we see him in, a real 40s suit is too caricature now to our modern eye. It's it, it almost looks like a you know gangster with like the way that when you actually get the real suits from the correct time period, things can start to look ridiculous it to our modern eye. And so in the case of Cole in 44, I did custom make the suit inspired by the correct 40s, you know, um, uh, you know, signatures of the slightly bigger shoulders and the wider pant leg, but, but, you know, had to had to make everything sort of not to distract or detract from from the character of Cole, like if everybody's just as we slip into these, like, time periods of the past to have them looking ridiculous and I'm using that word cautiously but you know that mm-hmm. suddenly we're only looking at the costume and we're not even paying attention to what he's saying so I guess there's I guess am I answering your question there's a little yeah. bit of both there's a little Absolutely. bit like I'm always go to the real source go to the let's do as much re- you know look at textbooks if you can when we're getting back into like the medieval like when we're going way back obviously there's no popular culture you know, of the actual, those actual really old time periods. So I'm, I'm digging through real, you know, historic texts and trying to make sure that I'm grounded in a real, in re, in, I'm, I'm putting in quotations, reality of medieval times, whatever that is. And then, but then after that, there's the reinterpretation, you know, for our modernized audience to watch and, and still think it looks cool and badass and doesn't, doesn't slip into the distracting, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I mean, there's a very, I mean, that, I, you know, a lot of times when fans are talking about the costumes on this show, that 1940s episode, it's a big favorite. And it was such an excellent, like, um, almost like an exclamation point. Um, like, wow, we are 
we are really like, it looks amazing. And the show had never done anything like that before. Um, was Cassie's dress something that you all designed or was that an actual vintage dress? That was an actual vintage dress. We um, source, sourced that from a, a gentleman in Toronto. His name's Ian Drummond, and he has an amazing uh, collection of period clothing. And um, it came from his collection, that that dress. And there was many. We, we He has, like, we were quite spoiled. He had some beautiful pieces for us to rent and, and try on, Amanda. But that red dress was, you know, by far the winner. And, um, uh, you know, Again, that kind of comes back to sort of the approach when you're working this quickly. You're you're trying to cherry pick all the best, most beautiful pieces to support the period you're in that exist. Then the second choice is if it doesn't exist or it doesn't work on the actor you're trying to buy. Um, no, before that, you're trying to build. We'll be building, you know, if we have the time, we're always going to custom make things. And then the last resort, like, for example, when we were in the 60s, was to buy, you know, like buy things that, you know, there's that peacoat, Cassie's wearing a little peacoat, but I mean, that isn't a period peacoat. That's a peacoat that we happened to purchase in a normal store, but styled the rest of it and her hair and everything and it made it work. So just the fast paces of pace of us trying to always run ahead of what they're shooting and stay ahead, um, you know, kind of dictated the way we approached the costumes on 12 Monkeys. Had this been a feature film and a different you know, it's a, kind of an interesting theory for me. Had this been a feature film where you would have tons of prep and we would shoot the whole thing as one big, long, continuous feature film, the approach might have been different. You know, it, it so really one dictates the other in this case. Got it. And were you, um, for that peacoat, is that the 1960s in Berlin? Yes. That, that, uh, the one that's kind of like a little bit it's got that collar that almost looks like it's a little bit off the shoulder at the opera house, that one. Oh, that no. From? I'm thinking of the no. little peacoat when they're trying to get through the wall. And I think oh, we got okay. it at H&M. But, the, but actually, the <laughs> other one you're talking about, that beautiful the beautiful yeah. one she wore with her like pale pink gown to the, um, to the theater, uh, that I think is Ann Taylor. I think we, that was new, too. We bought that like just in the mall. Oh my gosh, we we need like a, a shopping recommendations by Joyce at the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we can get some links from you. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think even like telling more tales. You know that beautiful. Oh, Amanda wore it so well. That beautiful, similarly shaped kind of skater skater dress cut coat she wore in the fifties. It was like a deep, deep jade green, and I had it with the little red gloves and her red purse. Mm -hmm. I think that was Ted Baker. Like that wasn't even real 50. So throughout the season, we're always trying to like cherry pick exi existing pieces because uh, from the stores be for, you know, that might slip into some of these um, episodes because of course, the stupid technical side of our filming, as Terry said, nothing's in sequence and you need multiples. And then when you go and get these gorgeous period you know, gowns and or, or suits or whatever, I can only use them exclusively if nothing happens to them. If they have a fight, they fall down the stairs, or they have a, you know, there's blood or whatever, I need two, three, four of the same garment, which doesn't exist in period clothing. So that's when if we had the time, we'd build all these pieces that would be, you know, appropriate for our, our, our time backwards. Um, but you know, sometimes you got to run to H&M because Amanda needed like eight of those little peacoats. And H&M has eight of those little peacoats. So, you know, 
Wow. It's all about problem solving, really. Out of curiosity, too, because I know over the past several years, there's like a huge surge in people wanting vintage clothing. Is it sometimes just more expensive to get the vintage than it would be to kind of tailor something that's sitting on a rack right now? Well, yeah, that could be the that could be very well be the case. Like I know, for example, in that 1940s uh, at the at the gala that they're at where Amanda's wearing the red dress, she meets that woman who greets her in that gold dress, that stunning gold dress that came from a vintage store in New York. And that thing cost <laughs> to rent. We didn't even buy that dress. We couldn't buy that dress. I think the rental on it was two grand. Just for the dress. Wow. For one week that we had it. So that's wild. Yes. The the cost um the cost of vintage can outweigh the cost of building. But again, it always comes down to time. It really it's sure. like can't what what can we do in the amount of time we have? And sometimes you steal from Peter to pay Paul in the case of that gold dress. So um you know, that's kind of the juggling act I'm doing all the time is, is, is on one hand being creative and supporting the characters and, and the journey they're on, but, you know, turning around and explaining to accounting why I had to spend $2,000 to rent a dress for three days. Well, because it's the perfect dress. That's why. <laughs> What's up with budgets? Am I right? Like, come on, guys. No, you don't need I that. Know, I know. I know. It's always like just this. Um, yeah. The the bane of my existence. I, I would love to be on a show sometime where uh, they gave us a little more money. I'm sure that show's out there somewhere, but I'm still <laughs> waiting. I'm still waiting for it. Right. Um, I did want to ask because there are some, um, was Ramsey's, because it, it, speaking of pieces that make you go, oh man, I'm glad that I, that that isn't the fashion now is Ramsey's tie that very 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 short wide tie he's wearing in the 40s is that is that vintage oh yes or is that, oh yes yeah. that's real <laughs> and that's vintage and 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 you know Kirk loved that tie he first of all Kirk loved that whole outfit uh, the thing that I love <laughs> about Kirk and he wasn't with us for all four seasons but when he was with us for, for season two and he reappeared later on so much fun um he, first of all, Kirk's fittings were hilarious because he never, he rarely tried on any clothes, but he, he had such good instincts about his clothes and he'd say, yeah, it's going to, it's going to be great. I love it. I love it. And then we'd spend the most of the time just chatting and talking about other things other than his costumes. But, um, are you guys there still? So Kirk, for his outfit for the 1940s, he, or 44, he... I believe he's told me he had an uncle or a relative. I believe there was some sort of, um, for him, a personal uh, v vision of his costume that came from, you know, these guys in New York at that time and, and not looking so suited and formal, but kind of like the more casual look. And, and so he was, he was very invested in this outfit. And we built that for him again, because there was, he, he was, you know, involved in a lot of action and there was multiples and stunting and he loved that tie I, he just he's 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 one of these guys who he's kind of no fuss uh usually with his costumes like his post-apocalyptic stuff i think he wore the same top for like the first eight episodes of season two he was he was just <laughs> not you know he's not like trying to peacock he, he's really about what feels right for the character and then he's happy not to change it but when it was the 40s oh yeah that was kirk kirk and i cooked that up and he loved it he just was loving that 
that, I mean, that's a great segue because it seems like he also kind of, uh, for the episode Immortal, where they go to the 1970s, again, his shirt is definitely a little bit more over the top, whereas Cole has more of the kind of cool leather jacket 70s look going on. Um, were those all vintage as well? or? Yes. Now, when we first did uh, our fittings for that 1970s episode, I remember, usually this doesn't happen, but somehow, I think maybe Kirk had just flown out from New York, or Cole just had a few minutes stepping away from set or something. But we wound up having them both at the same time in the fitting room, side by side, putting on their 70s stuff. And they were just howling, but they were loving it, like just loving it. I had like the, you know, the little matching denim vest with the big wide <laughs> leg, uh, you know, 70s flares and the shirts and the jackets. And both Aaron and uh, Kirk were, were totally down with the whole thing and, and having a great time. But then again, then it's one of those cases like I described where you couldn't let the clothes kind of uh, overtake the acting, right? Mm -hmm. Or the storytelling. And, and somebody, I don't remember who it might've been the director. It might've been Terry sort of wanted to pull back that it was getting a little too visually distracting. So that's why if you actually notice, they only kind of change their tops when they go to the 70s. It's still their same, you know, normal jeans in the bottom, because the wide legs and the platform shoes and all that. Mm -hmm. Somebody, somebody higher than me got cold feet, and we kind of toned it down a little bit. Ah. But I will tell you that Kirk, again, he, he loved that shirt. He loved that shirt so much that it is the one and only time I was talking earlier about the splintering and how this, you know, the conceit of the splinter. So when they would come back from the time, you know, in, in historical time they were in, in this case, the seventies, and they splinter back to the temporal facility, then, you know, we always very quickly in the next scene, they're back in their uh, post-apocalyptic clothing and and we've moved away from the period right no that'll be the that's the one episode the one time you will see kirk he's outside at the, i think they're on the roof of the temporal facility he insisted on continuing to wear his 70s shirt <laughs> even back <laughs> in 2044 because he's like i'm not taking it off i'm like well kirk you know what you gotta take because we're back and now it's you gotta go back nope so I don't know why, but sometimes it doesn't always make sense. But yeah, he when Kirk loves something, he loves something. So he loved <laughs> he loved those shirts. And again, you know, it was just kind of a I don't think it was inspired by a specific character. It was just something that uh, Kirk loved. It was a love at first sight. Yeah, well, it was, it's quite a shirt. It is quite a shirt. <laughs> so it is quite a shirt. It was worthy of it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the 1950s episodes, because we actually, between seasons two and season three, we spent quite a bit of time um, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And um, part of it, part of it is plot, right? Like Cassie's wearing very, a very, very tailored um, suits and little, you know, as you were talking about the red accent, a little red belt, you know, when she's in an office place. But that's also when that character is is very focused on, on the mission, mm -hmm. right? And things are quite tense. And then there's this shift later when she wakes up in the coma and the clothes, and it makes sense, right? She's not in a workplace anymore. But, but the clothes become more 
casual as the character begins to open up a little bit more. And I don't, is that something that you all were, is it, is it, was it simply just the, the practical about what is Cassie doing right now? Or, or is that also a case of the clothes sort of communicating the character's emotional journey? Oh, does that question make sense? Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's what it was. It was the emotional journey that she was on. I mean, initially she was literally all business when she, she landed and, and, and they were very much trying to assimilate to the fifties too and, and not stand out and, and complete or continue their mission in that time period. But after, afterwards, um, she, she does sort of, I think it's a time of like reflection and a time where she's trying to consider like, could she stay and stay forever in this place and just be happy? And I, I think she's at a crossroads. I, I think she's at a crossroads and, and mm. the really tailored look was, was the affectation necessary for the mission. And now I think she's not, she's just not in that space anymore. And um she's looking for happiness and, and obviously it's just a, you know, her journey was so complicated and she had so many things um, sort of driving her, it fe- felt like. And that, and, and so all the affectation by that point just fell away. I feel that that's what it was. It was just more about simplicity or trying mm-hmm. to keep it simple. Um, you know, whether that was successful for her emotionally or not, that's kind of where we, what we were trying to depict. Less affectation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as much as I, as much as I love that red purse and those red gloves, <laughs> they look so amazing. With I that know. Jacket. Does Amanda Shule suit the fifties or what? I mean, uh-huh. I, yeah. that was a combination of you know found things and rented things and bought things. But she, the I could pull those real fifties dresses off, you know, from the rental companies, and they fit her perfectly. So she, she really. Um, yeah, she just looked gorgeous. Those were some of my favorite costumes were her 50s costumes. Yeah. If we could shift to beginning of season three, uh, when Jennifer is in Paris in the 1920s, um, our first question, because I thought we caught a film reference when we were re- re-watching sort of the, the Charlie Chaplin, the Tramp film. Yeah. Um, and was that, that an intentional reference? That's just when Jennifer's sort of wearing that little like newsboy cap. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It was the tramp. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and was that sort of in the script or was that something you all developed as sort of a let, let's reference this film as kind of a, a meta? I think it was a conversation between Terry and Emily and I. I can't remember who brought it up. It probably was Terry. Uh, I know that, or I can't remember exactly. I think it might've been Terry, but Terry and Emily were so symbiotic with their like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, on board with these ideas, uh, you know, together with me. So, uh, it came from one of them and that was the reference. And then that fitting photo, oh, I don't know. I'm speaking of fitting photos. You haven't seen I don't know if you know that, but there is a photo of Emily and it's kind of a black and white and she's, she's like staring at her you know she's staring off to the side and she's kind of sitting cross-legged that was the fitting photo like that that was where that came from originally and Uh um uh and I'm not sure if people saw it but I feel like it's out there like on Emily's Instagram or maybe Terry's posted this amazing picture of her that was just one of those yeah perfect it came together and it worked so well for her character and um 
and yeah, I guess it was a discussion. It was a discussion, and then one, it was one of those easy costumes where it's just like, oh yeah, this is going to work. It's going to look so good, and she loved it. Emily loved wearing that one. And then what about when they're like, okay, so it's 1920s, somebody is performing on a stage. So it's like, a, a, it's not just real life in the 19, it's somebody stuck from the future in the 1920s, and now they're performing theater in front. There's a lot of layers for you to mm-hmm. sort of unpack there mm-hmm. as a costume designer. Um, did you have sort of any stories about how you came up with with Jennifer's looks as a stage actress in the 1920s? Oh, I I just remember that being so much fun to create all those super theatrical costumes. And I I remember also trying to work the blood out when she dies, when when she has that (laughs) two-sided costume. And and then she, uh, I can't remember the French word, but I die, I die, and she lies down or whatever she says and throwing out the red ribbon. And um, I just remember looking at, at sort of, you know, trying to get theatrical references for that time period. And then, of course, the story itself was kind of directing me what we needed. I remember the bathing suit that we made for her when she gets <laughs> when she gets eaten by the shark, like how uncomfortable that wool bathing suit was on for her <laughs> and her just like, oh, it's itchy. But, um, you know, she looks so – I love that whole sequence. If we can jump then to what I'm sure you have heard a lot, um, if you've heard from 12 Monkeys fans, one of the fan favorites is the 1980s episode. And so much of that has to do with the costumes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if you could tell us sort of about the creative process of trying to think how Jennifer would dress her friends um, in the 1980s leading up to that just sort of iconic moment where all of them walk into the lobby in their various versions of, of 1980s fashion. <laughs> I remember I remember that episode. It was super collaborative, like ha- talking to Terry. How, how would she see them? And, and of course, it felt like it had to be, you know, little uh, spotlights of iconic 80s memories of you know the 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 ourselves the the audience that was going to see this episode so we really wanted to hit upon or have Jennifer in her mind see her friends in the broad strokes of the 80s so you know landing of course on the uh, Marty McFly outfit for Cole which um I had no idea of the mythology behind that costume until we started to look into it because uh, there's this whole culture online about the Marty McFly outfit from head to toe and, you know, uh, arguments about which is the correct guest jeans and, you know, what what is the correct jacket and the lining and the... Wow! There is this whole world out there where people are trying to collect and find the actual correct, you know, runners, like that special Nike swoosh from that year with the red swoosh. Anyway, it goes on and on. As you dig into that costume specifically, you find there's all these like chat groups and and in the end actually one of the one of these people who collect these marty mcfly costumes reached out to us or to terry i think and said you know i have the actual vest that was worn in the movie and the actual jacket in the meantime i thought okay so this is universal universal produced the movie way back when 
Universal has a costume rental company. Let's phone Universal. Like, why are we trying to find replicas of this <laughs> costume? Why don't I just rent the costume? So I called Universal and do you know what? That costume has been stolen and or lost for <gasps> almost since the, uh, you know, when the movie came out. There's a big mystery about that uh, head-to-toe costume. Nobody knows where it is. And wow. it, um, so now we're trying to recreate something that doesn't potentially exist anymore. So in the end, that nice gentleman who sent some of the costume pieces, the jacket wasn't the right jacket. We ended up building the jacket and the lining is very specific because you see it because, um, mm-hmm. the sleeves are rolled up. We had to custom print the lining. Terry was very invested if we were going to do the Marty McFly outfit, that it be correct, 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 <laughs> because those fans out there who know it would know if it wasn't. So there was a lot of investment in that one. And, and of course, Cole got to wear, you know, that very, very exciting costume. And then uh, Deacon and his um, Miami Miami Vice. <laughs> I felt like Todd really wore that well. And maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't such a dis- distant memory for him to be wearing, <laughs> wearing stuff that looked like that. And uh, because really for me, uh, it wasn't. Like I grew up, I went to high school in the 80s. This is exactly <laughs> my my jam. So when we were dressing Amanda, it was kind of like, yeah, we, we were looking at, you know, references of all the iconic kind of rom-com ladies at the time. Uh, but I think there was a little bit of my high school years thrown in there, too, with those those acid wash pants and, and <laughs> things that were very familiar to me at the time, the Reebok high, co- high tops. And anyway, it was such a fun episode and uh, to do. And I think the other thing uh, about it. I mean, Emily got to be, we did the Cindy Lauper thing. That was a brief, that brief walking in sort of montage moment. But I also remember, um, you know, at the auction and her outfits we did for that, that, and I, that Navy dress, there's a Navy dress she has on that has like the biggest puffiest sleeves you've ever seen. She had to go (laughs) through doorways sideways. And I remember Emily and I trying, I found that dress that was like a, you know, consignment store find i believe and we were so excited and we knew that was just going to be perfect for the episode and terry saw it and he's like oh i don't know and i'm like no (laughs) we gotta use this one and it was one of those cases where it took both emily and i usually terry's like he's he's on or he's he's not digging it at all like there's no sort of you know he he's very um visual and he's really certain about what you know supports the story that one he was a little, he, he, he needed, I didn't think we could convince him, but we did. We convinced him and he let us put that dress in because it was such a, she, it was, it was, you know, Jennifer's memory and, and it was just her being her most fabulous self. And, uh, and that was something she felt very, Emily felt passionate about that. That was going to be the, the perfect dress in that case. So anyway, the whole episode it was it was as gratifying to do as I hope it was for people to watch. That's for sure. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I definitely remember. I'm in my 40s, so I remember that fashion well. And you know, even um, doesn't get as she doesn't get as much attention right in the episode. But even Olivia's look just it, to me is like brings me back to like Sigourney Weaver and Working Girl. Yes. right. That like. Pa- um, you know, the structure to the suits, um, like 
uh, the professional woman, right? And those shoulder pads and that square cut. Absolutely. Um, it's very Valentino, yeah. very Valentino at the time. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I love it. Um, I kind of love the whole look. I mean, I don't know. I guess it kind of came back again a little bit. But yeah, that was, I feel like the 80s was a, was a time period where everything was just so creative and anything was possible fashion wise and i feel like since since then we've never really had that fashion moment again just culturally for all of us here in north america it it was such a you look back at it now and it is so out there and i don't really feel like anything since then has been that interesting but that's just a personal opinion yeah but that's such a good point though right think about the the range, and I know that they represent slightly different um, years, let's say, in the 80s, but just look at that range of mm-hmm. those characters in the lobby um, that you can have Cindy Lauper to Miami Vice to the like side pony in the blazer, right? Rolled sure. up. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And there was like just sort of that futuristic geometric, uh, you know, heavily shouldered. I don't know. It just seemed like. And all those colors that were so specifically 80s, you know, those those teals and and there was a bit lot of neon and I don't know, I just feel like it, it was such a great caps a time capsule of fashion. I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm just coloring this with fond memories. <laughs> <laughs> One of the episodes that especially when you all talk about your budget constraints, but to me just looked like a BBC, you know, the big BBC period drama with the amazing costumes is the time that we spent in the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess just to start off, because when Amanda Schul came on our podcast, she was talking about the vintage dress that Cassie wears at the beginning of Masks, you know, when she's learning mm-hmm. how to be a thief. Um, so we'd love, we'd love to hear about finding those finding those vintage costumes you know if there were any particular inspirations you had in mind and then you know of course leading up to to the masquerade ball where where you've I can't even it's so many extras that you had to costume um so we'd love to hear about your work for that episode the victorian dress that amanda shul wears in the um victorian episodes the first one, or the one pretty much she wears through it all, but you don't see much of it because we we shot exterior when we got to Prague and damn it, she needed to have something warm over top of it. But I found that, I found this beautiful real dress from like the 1890s, again at this this collection uh, we have in Toronto, the Ian Drummond Collection. And he had just got it. It had come from an estate sale and it had been found in a trunk. He hadn't even tagged it or labeled it as in his system yet. It was, it literally was serendipity that I found this beautiful purple, deep, deep royal purple silk and black uh, Victorian ensemble. And I asked if I could take it and take it to Prague. And it was so delicate, like I, it was because it was silk, I, it was already starting to shred a little bit just from age. But um, he let me take it. And I told Amanda, I said this, I found something for your Victorian look. And it's, it's so beautiful. And it's going, I don't even think I'll have to alter it. Uh, an inch it's 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 perfectly fit for you and she told me afterwards she was thinking yeah right but she put it on and sure enough it 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 fit her like it was made for her this this extremely 
special and rare dress. So that was the start of us getting ready for those big uh, Victorian sequences that wound up being shot in Europe. But um, that's that's something that we didn't get to touch on with Terry too. There was there was all this stuff planned. This very beautiful, grand, as you say, like BBC-esque um, shots to be done in Europe, in Prague. But at the same time, we're still shooting in Toronto, like a mi- 100 miles a minute. And somehow, I have to leave Toronto and go ahead to Prague while everybody, including the cast, stays in Toronto. And I have to start prepping the rest of that ball and just the rest of the clothes for our main cast over there. And so um, that became this, what I spoke of earlier, you know, having a lot of good faith, good luck, good faith that somehow, by the time everybody comes over to shoot this stuff, these big grand scenes, I'll be ready. Because I don't have the actors there. They're not with me. So I had to, uh, before I left for Prague, I had an assistant over there and I told her what I was going to need for the cast. And speaking of the BBC, she went to London and she did source a lot of that stuff from Angels, which is one of the biggest... uh, costume rental companies in London. So, and probably a lot of stuff you do see on the BBC. So uh, good eye, good eye. (laughs) (laughs) So she pulled a bunch of stuff, me not knowing what's going to be there when I land and all the stuff that was needed for the ball, all that very color specific stuff uh, for that, you know, red themed ball. So um, I, you know, I look back now and it's kind of terrifying. You're just relying on the fact that this is all going to work out, right? And um, so we did. I did go ahead to Prague. I didn't have the actors. I took cloth with me. I was concerned about finding cloth in Prague. It it doesn't have a, a great. I was I was warned. There's not great fabric sources in in Prague. So I shopped all this stuff via Toronto, New York. Put it all in big hockey bags. Shipped it all to Prague. Still not even knowing what I'm making. But at least I have cloth with me that's going to be in the right colors for the Victorian looks. And then I started to build. And um, by the time the actors showed up, I think they showed up like two days before we went to camera. So I had no time. I like, I hope this is going to work. I think a part of costume designing that is probably underestimated by costume designers ourselves is the amount of anticipation or I don't know, psychic intuition, you need to kind of think ahead and make sure that everything is going to just be there when it needs to be there um, before anybody even realizes it's needed, if you know what I mean. You know, as as everybody else comes through the path of their process and lands at, oh, yeah, we need, we're going to need a cape on that guy because the horse is going to be whatever. I had to have already thought of that, you know, so that it's yeah. there. Or, or if they didn't need the cape, doesn't matter but I already I always have to kind of anticipate every variation because there's never the time to think at the end okay we'll need this it's like sorry but anyway yeah that's so interesting because you know I'm I'm sure there are a lot of people working on film and tv where you have to fill in the gaps right between what's written Mm -hmm. right so between this scene and this scene or this character goes to the do the next thing that's not explicit on the page and so you're having to fill in, okay, well, they got dressed in the apartment and now they're riding in a carriage to the ball <laughs> and you're filling in all of those gaps, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I know a director and other people are doing as well, but yours is very practical with clothes. 
Well, it is. And speaking of that, at that ball, after the ball, they all leave and they go outside in their clothes from, from the ball. So um, that all of those clothes we, we built, I, I designed and made, we made all of that stuff. And so they all had two sets. They had the set they wore inside the ball where there was actual lit fires in that beautiful um uh, mansion or we were shooting in and uh and then they all step outside where it's Prague in the winter so the second set all had um fleece lining so it, you know to the discerning eye you'll notice their costumes are all a little bit bigger as soon as they step outside because we had to make them all lined uh to keep the actors warm, they couldn't just step out in what they were wearing inside. So, you know, that's one of those little practical things where you have to, it's not written, but everybody needs two sets of everything for warm and for cold. Yeah. Um, I mean, still in the Victorian era, but, you know, you introduced, you know, with costumes and set in a different time period, Ethan and Eliza um, for the episode for Thief. And very different, right? I mean, you've got sort of this bon vivant that's kind of unattached and traveling through time. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got Eliza, who's very much roll your sleeves up and working in a hospital. Um, so do you have any and, – and then you have that dining scene, again, with all of these extras just, you know, in the, Vic, in the Victorian era. Were sort of there any behind-the-scenes stories of how you crafted those costumes for, for Thief? Um, well, Eliza, again, that was a case where I didn't have the actress. I didn't know who it was going to be. They, they hadn't chosen somebody to play the part yet. I had to figure out kind of what I wanted her to look like before I left Toronto. So bought the cloth, not knowing who it was or what it was, what it was going to end up looking like. So, um, and then once we got to Prague, they, they, cast the lovely Claire Cooper and we um we we just started from there. So there's a lot of you're right filling in the blanks I guess is the best way to put it. Claire Cooper, I mean, like Amanda Shule, you know, it, it you could put her in anything and she just looks completely gorgeous. She is a a a beautiful lady and so Terry had some very specific ideas about her, you know, her hood and how it had to frame her face, but other than that I was able to kind of come up with the rest of the costume all by myself and um and had to because he was too busy in Toronto you know and he wasn't there so these were sort of those those prog times were those few times where I was kind of on my own like just figuring it out so that's what I mean they they ended up coming to the couch sitting there and like what do you got and it was always a bit of a surprise for them as well as uh, me getting my first feedback on on you know his opinion and um and yeah we're shooting it in two days terry so i hope you like it <laughs> but um i just remember you know knowing the way that eliza ends you know uh, how how um how she dies and dies and dies and dies and dies there was a certain somberness yeah. to her costume you know that and and just her incredible work ethic so I was trying to incorporate both those, you know, kind of a practicality, um, you know, her being a nurse and her giving back and her, her selflessness. So she was, though it was Victorian, she was not too adorned. It was pretty simple. And, um, I just loved the way, like the simplicity of her nursing costume in the, in that gorgeous set that we shot in Prague, those, the, that beautiful building and the beautiful lighting. It was, you know, 
oh, sumptuous, just so sumptuous. And yeah, and Ethan being just such a, a roguish uh, character and, and bringing that to the costume. But he he was one. Of, he was a little bit strange. He had to stay in Toronto to shoot all his present day stuff, and then and then he showed up late to me. So what can I say? I keep saying the same thing over and over again. It's a scramble. Everything's a bit of a scramble. I mean, I, I, though, I mean, we have been, um, you know, as people have listened, we've, we have been huge fans of your costume work, but I'm frankly in awe listening to how under the gun it all was because you certainly can't tell that on the screen. Oh, Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But I did have a good, this is the part where I wanted, I wanted Terry to, Terry to be here about dressing all those extras in the restaurant. Did he tell you anything about that? He was Reef Wellington. I think it was Reef Wellington. It wasn't Beef Wellington. He had a name. He made up his own. We actually had a contest amongst the crew members, like name Terry's character. And um, I don't know if he came. I suspect he came up with, uh, I think, God, I hope I'm saying it right, Reef Wellington. And so I just remember he's so busy. And, uh, you know, the days leading up to that scene, I'm like, Terry, you got to come and try on these costumes. I got this costume. You got to try it on. We got a bunch of stuff. We got to try it on for your, for your restaurant scene. And he's like, yeah, 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 I'm going to, but of course it was always hard to, to grab them. So I finally got him to try on the clothes. I think we were shooting outside of a church and there was a tent and I, I you know, so there he is like just sort of off aside from the camera pulling off his pants and we're trying to get him into all this stuff we shot him on that in that restaurant and i don't know if the fans know that he's in that scene but every time i see him peeking around peeking he's at the table behind uh, (laughs) our couple sitting in the foreground and i just kind of catch him leaning out and it makes me laugh every time i see it i don't know i think maybe that might have been his alter ego in another lifetime (laughs) because he just took to it like a duck to water (laughs) yeah that's great that was fun Uh, doing those anytime you get anybody doing cameos oh which which is another part he might not have mentioned to you um yeah is that our dp our, our our director of photography boris boris i've dressed boris more times in 12 monkeys he's in all kinds of episodes as cameos we had him in the 70s episode i had him in the ball Again, I remember pulling him out saying, okay, come on, you got to like get away from the camera. I got to dress you. Um, Yeah. And I bet you if you ask Terry, there is another, you guys haven't interviewed Boris yet. Have you for um, for this podcast? No, we'd love to because the show's so beautiful to look at. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. So Boris, he and Boris can remind you, I feel like there was probably at least one other time. If I wasn't dressing Boris, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a complete episode. <laughs> so there's some great shots Terry took of Boris in the 70s. He's leaning against a car. And that that's another person just loves to dress up. I don't know, like Terry, get him in it. And they're just hamming it up like crazy in, <laughs> in the background. So yeah, that's another little Easter egg for the fans. Spot Boris. Yeah. The, oh my gosh. Yeah. I never, yeah, we never heard of that. Yep. That's wonderful. We had two other really quick time periods that we wanted to ask you about if we're not treading too long on your time. No, no, go ahead. The next one is in season four, um, the episode after the 1960s episode. 
because it, you know we had been in the early 60s in Berlin, but this is very much swinging 60s, red go-go boots and short mini skirts and Michael Caine glasses and all of it. So I'd love to hear, you know, were those pieces vintage and just a little bit about the creative process for that episode. The the Michael Caine glasses, I feel like props provided them to me. I did the fitting with Aaron. And um, I got to say, when I was looking at the glasses in the tray before I brought them in to fit them on Aaron, I'm kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure how Aaron is going to feel about these because they just seem so like, oh, they're heavy and uh, anyway, but I brought them in with me because I was putting on the rest of his costume, and um, uh, and I feel like that 1960s costume for him. I think at that point in filming, it was a lot of found stuff. We had no time to build, uh, and I just think for all the action in that episode, and there was a lot. I needed multiples on everything, so I think um, I think I got a lot of his stuff that kind of read as '60s from All Saints. But then we pulled all this the, these glasses on him, and Aaron he was so down for it. The glasses look great. In fact, my 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 photo and my caller ID of uh, Aaron when he calls me it is that photo of him wearing the <laughs> Michael King glasses. That's the one I uploaded for his. Uh, for his little thing in my phone. I have my pictures in my phone are just like my personal little delights for, for me, usually only myself, but anyway, that it is those glasses. So I love those glasses on him. Um, and then I remember doing, I was struggling with Amanda's sixties look, to be honest, because it, there was so much action and then there was sadness and the, for her. And I just felt like, you know, the kind of, fun and graphicness of the 60s didn't kind of work later on in our story when when things got super emotional and and so we kind of solved that with that montage like that opening montage of them walking through I think it's the lobby of the Emerson right they're uh, they and all in their 60s gear so we got to kind of showcase the period but then not carry it through for when things got a little serious and sad so um it it was so it was so much fun and we had Emily yeah Emily in that black and white dress mm. oh, she just looks so good in that stuff i just yeah. it's really gratifying when you're trying to create those looks and it works so well like and i will say that about the actors and that's kind of what i'm saying about Aaron they were all so emotionally invested in their characters that there was none of this sort of personal ego stepping in between you know, creating a great period look or a great costume look for them where they ever kind of said, oh God, no, it feels too silly or it feels too, like I'm embarrassed, like me, the person's embarrassed to do something like this, or I feel like, I feel like the joke's on me. They never felt like that, which was kind of the most delightful environment for a costume designer to say, this is what we're going to do. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And so, um, and then for it to come full circle where I'm happy with it as well. You know, it feels organic and right and appropriate for the for the storytelling, but for the characters as well. Like, that's just kind of what I'm always going for, for things not to look foisted onto a body. And then you're kind of bumping up against it visually. Mm -hmm. I'm my own worst critic, obviously. I mean, I look at things and I, not not 12 monkeys, but other things and I'm like, oh. 
you know, and I hate that feeling. And I feel like because we were all on board and because I had Terry as my point person, we got such a really good, strong look consistently through the whole show because that, as it turns out, is a unique situation. Normally on big, you know, um, big shows of this type, there are multiple producers involved that have a say in the costumes, the director, of course, the actors, of course. Um, and when you have more people involved, though, you would think, oh, that's great. You can have a lot, you know, more creative input. It tends to actually water it down because you're trying to please so many different sets of eyes. And and that's always a struggle. And that's where I kind of land on other shows sometimes like, oh, you know, I, I don't think that was the right direction. But because Terry and I, it was just down to us. I feel like you see that you see you see it in the costumes. Yeah. I mean, what it's so what's so interesting when you pointed that out about the different that the shift in tone in that episode, you have so many moments that have to do with just, you know, walking out of the elevator and it's just kind of this like, damn, we look good mm -hmm. moment, right? Yeah. That's so much about the costumes. But that emphasis, you know, that ends up sort of underscoring what you're losing, mm -hmm. right? That which is the whole sort of inquiry of that episode, losing those happy times, right? Loss. And then she just sort of puts that peacoat over from you know, in the lobby, and all of a sudden, it does transform it to be a bit more somber. Yes, yeah, later on. But that's, you know, just as you're pointing that out, it, it, you just kind of stop. And even though, you know, we certainly appreciated the costumes and just sort of, you know, they look great. And isn't this fun to be in the 60s? It, it actually really, I don't know, you step back and appreciate how it's sort of underscoring the themes of the episode. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you I mean, it to hear you even being approaching critical of your work, I hope you know that fans create like um, like collages of each decade with the costumes of your work of of the characters in each decade. Oh, it's pretty. I didn't yeah, know that. I didn't know that. That's so lovely. One last episode we want to ask you about because it's just one of those episodes that looked like you all had a big budget feature length film was Diglaka. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had much of, you know, we've got the maid uniforms, Nazi uniforms, but also we didn't mention Jones and masks, but anytime we get to see Katarina Jones dressed up, it, you just makes you want to cheer, um, getting to see her not in a trench coat yeah. <laughs> for, so we'd love to just hear about the cot cause, uh, you know, there's, so much in terms of period work and and having to deal with Nazi uniforms, but then Cassie and Jones's dresses are absolutely gorgeous. So we'd we'd love just to close out to hear a little bit about the costumes for Diglaka. The dresses that we built for that episode, uh, we did do in Toronto. We started in Toronto, and it was again one of those cases where we had to try to prep as much as we could before. I flew out to Prague, but everybody stayed. It's it's that whole sort of um, leapfrogging that we did again. So now this is the second time I'm doing it, so I'm a little bit better at it, thank goodness. So we did, we realized rather than leaving everything to, you know, Terry showing up and it's two days before we go to camera, I prepared a lot more of the stuff this time in Toronto. Um, I did create uh, that black dress um, for Dr. Jones, and it was 
inspired by the period, but also um, I talked to Barbara about it and, you know, she had some definite ideas about how she wanted to be strong in the shoulders. That, that, that was the one thing about her wearing that trench throughout the whole, you know, all the seasons of 12 Monkeys, that, that kind of strong shouldered look, she didn't want to lose that or suddenly look soft or Mm -hmm. in any way kind of, um, you know, deferential or, or just, Mm -hmm. you know, less in her power. So to have something that really reads strong and gives that visual impact when we're going to see her, um, was important, of course, to both of us, to all of us. And so, um, and I wanted her to look so good. And of course I did at the mass ball as well, because, because she's always in that trench coat, you know, it was her chance to step out. Um, I do remember when we did the, did the mass ball, as I say, that was our first time in Prague and everything was a bit disjointed. I built that dress for her in Prague and I just remember trying to get her in it because Barbara was like, oh my God, I can't, that corset is just, I enjoy, we'd have this little argument every morning, like, I just don't think I could, you've got to loosen that corset. I'm not doing this. I can't, I don't think I can breathe. And then I'm like, Barbara, you can do it. And so she would, <laughs> she would be in it. And, and both those dresses from the mass ball and um, from the uh, Nazi episode, they look so good on her that it always, I think the minute she kind of got the whole thing together and her hair makeup done, she was, she was just basking in how beautiful she looked and, uh, and how powerful she felt. So um, I felt really good about those dresses and, and they kind of, again, served the purpose of, of what she wanted to relay. And I think with the German episode, not the Nazi episode, I should say, um, Die Glock, it was really important for me, for for uh, Jennifer and Cassie and Dr. Jones, to have very distinct and strong colors uh, between them because that was going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, visually busy scenes, right, with all these crowds and these people and stuff. So uh, keeping Jones in the black uh, and this beautiful dress that we designed and made up for for uh, Cassie was a combination of uh, myself and my assistant Katie Syracuse uh, she came she did the first illustration for that beautiful cream colored dress and then she and I executed it and then uh, in Toronto and then I came up with the little shrug we realized that it was going to be co- way too cool for Cassie to be in this beautiful manner where we shot the scenes um, in just that dress. So I ended up designing that little shrug for her and visually keeping them sort of at opposite ends of the spectrum to, to just really visually keep them both equally strong and neither one looking uh, reticent or, or deferential to the other. So that was kind of the, the thinking behind it. And then um, Jennifer in her maid's uniform she, we built all those. I designed all those. We made all those from scratch. And, um, I just, uh, I loved how it looked, wor- sorry. I loved how it worked on Emily. I loved the way, um, again, it's just a personal thing. I love the way she wore it and she loved that costume too. I mean, the whole thing, the Nazi uniforms, oh, we got those from Poland. So again, you're in another country, working in another country with a crew that doesn't speak 
much English. And now you're going to another European country to try to source uniforms. And um, so these all arrived from Poland, had them on the actors in Prague, did a little alteration here and there because, you know, German uniforms, despite the fact that Hugo Boss designed the original ones, these were no Hugo Boss uniforms. <laughs> these were mm. the, the cheap and cheerful uh, for rental Nazi uniforms. And so we did a bit of work for the gentlemen to make sure they looked appropriately tailored. But um, uh, that whole episode was so much fun to be a part of. But what the audience can't see is how damn, um, you know, we had these cold days and then we had these hot days with all these poor men in these wool, wool uniforms lying around. There's The crew has all sorts of great pictures of the, the guys in the army uniforms passed out and or sleeping places because I think they almost asphyxiated from from heat and all that wool. But sorry, I digress. I digress. <laughs> no, I got off yeah. the topic of the ladies. <laughs> no, I mean, the the uniforms are as much a part of sort of the, you know, the way that episode hits you. It's because of the massive amount of them we needed too. There was just a lot of people. And, uh, and of course, doing all the research to make sure that was all correct. And, you know, the insignias were correct. That took it a great deal of research just to make sure that was right, because uh, there's lots of people who really study that and know that and would be hopefully watching our show. And so I was, you know, trying to make sure, yeah, that in addition to just the historical period and the costumes, costumes being correct, that I was getting, you know, all those smaller details of the of the uniforms correct as well. Yeah, well, it is a visually stunning episode. And a, a lot of that, I mean, the cinematography, of course, but of course, it's the costumes as well. So mm -hmm. wow, I just hearing how you all were pulling all of this together. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, Joyce, we had one last, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a fan theory about having to do with sort of the plot of the show, right? And sort of where it's leading Cassie up to and having to make sort of that final choice with the Red Forest. Mm -hmm. um, and talking about how sort of before she gets dragged into this whole conspiracy in the pilot, she's wearing blue. She's often dressed in red or with red accents throughout the series. And then at the end, when, you know, the world is healed and she is a doctor again, she's in blue again. Um, and so there was sort of fans speculating about what the colors symbolize and whether that was intentional and how Cassie was costumed in red or with red accents throughout the show. So we figured we'd ask the costume designer um, if there was if there was any any water to that theory. I like that theory. I, <laughs> I think that um, I shouldn't take credit for for how beautifully that all played out. But, um, you know, maybe. <laughs> that will leave that open to interpretation too <laughs> yes exactly i mean on some uh, did i plot it out that way like specifically like okay we're gonna start here and we're gonna end here no i didn't did did it did it you know did we find opportunities to put red on her to sort of uh you know reference the way red was a very important sort of it was almost its own character in 12 monkeys did we put it in there purposely at times sure do, do we wind up at the end uh you know back in blue i didn't you know what i never really thought of was that or i don't remember if that was like a conscious thing that terry told me he may have told me that 
That's such a smart observation, really. Did I mention that we were rushing through this thing <laughs> at breakneck speed and at times, you know? I will, yeah. I mean, people have fun with it, right? Like the primary colors and the yellow chalk and Jennifer's wearing a yellow dress um, in her yes. 99 Luft balloons, if, if that was intentional. Yes, um, yes, yes. It was. And I think okay. there was also in the first time we kind of did that montage in season two where she was walking along the street with her umbrella and she was like, yeah. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we made sure she had a bunch of uh, primary colors on. I think in that mo- that first, I don't remember what episode that was called, but you know the one I mean where she's... Yeah, it's the Mary Tyler Moore. The Mary Tyler Moore you know, moment, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we tried to make sure that she was in, you know, she had colors on that were primary in that, for sure. That was a conscious thing as well. So we did try to use color to tell the story, but that nice, tidy ending with Rayleigh... I honestly, I don't want to take credit for that for sure, because I can't remember, I can't remember if we landed on that choice because of that or not. I'm going to give the credit to Terry. I'm going to say Terry, (laughs) Terry thought of that and Terry, yes, made sure that we landed in that place. Oh, this was so fun, Joyce. Um, we've just been huge fans, and many of the fans are of your work. So it's just, it's really fantastic to hear about your creative process. Thank you so much for taking this time with us and to let fans in um, on sort of some behind the scenes stories for costuming in this show. Where can where can folks see your work now um, since 12 Monkeys, either to since or, or coming up? Um, right now on Amazon Prime, they're really pushing, uh, or promoting, I should say, The Boys Season 2. I did not do The Boys Season 2, but I did do The Boys Season 1. So for any of you people that are interested, I guess, in that show, if you watch the first season, you'll see, you'll see my work there. And, um, and of course, now I'm on this show, Titans. I've been on Titans since the very beginning, and that's on Netflix. We're just starting our third season of prep right now, post well, not post COVID, but you know, as the industry starts coming back to work in this COVID um, world we're living in, I'm about to start season three. But if anybody hasn't seen one and two seasons of Titans, I'd encourage you to watch that. And I, then I did a little, I did about three months of reshoots back in Prague on Carnival Row, which is on oh, Amazon yeah. Prime as well. So I got a few shows out there right now. Got it. Yeah. And and how lucky am I that I get to work in all these different, you know, it's like exercising my, my costume muscles, I guess. I get to try all these different, different types of looks. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really had fun. Next up, a conversation with 12 Monkeys prop master Mary Arthurs and Terry Metalis about creating all of the iconic props of 12 Monkeys, from the witness mask to the word of the witness to the splinter suits and everything in between. Thank you for listening. Until next time, we'll see you soon.